Good morning. I am your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 23, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. Amidst the breaking news about the banning ranch development in Newport Beach and the recent firing of California Coastal Commission Director Charles Lester, banning ranch conservancy president Terry Welsh offers a considered look at the options before the California Coastal Commission concerning the Newport Beach development. Then, Dr. Mandy Mount, director of the UCI Campus Assault Resources and Education, picks up where she left with us a year ago on matters of consent and presents new holistic healing practices consistent with UCI's culturally diverse population of students. We'll be right back after a very short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Dr. Terry Welsh, president of the Banning Ranch Conservancy, whose day job is a pathologist at the Anaheim Regional Medical Center. This community physician and coastal open space activist is also the current president of the Banning Ranch Conservancy. After working with the Bolsa Chica effort, which we'll talk about briefly, if we have a chance, because we've got lots to cover, Dr. Terry Welsh founded the Sierra Club Banning Ranch Park and Preserve Task Force and has served as its chairperson since 1999. He served as president of the Banning Ranch Conservancy since its creation in 2008. He completed his Bachelor of Arts in Biology at UC Santa Cruz, Master's Degree in Molecular Biology from San Francisco State University, and his medical d- degree at the University of Kansas Medical Center. He carves out a half hour of this busy life to bring us reasoned, if not seasoned, insight as to what is at stake with the pending banning ranch development proposal before the California Coastal Commission. We'll lay out most of the basic information for you all today with the intent of following up later in May as regional decisions and commitments will be made. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Terry Welsh. Thank you, Claudia. I'm glad to be here. Well, before we get into the details of the development proposal in Newport Beach, it seems like a good opportunity to ask you about the recent firing of the California Coastal Commission Director, Charles Lester. The public outpouring of support of Mr. Lester in the spirit of and then the letter of the law of the California Coastal Act did not seem to persuade the commission to retain Lester's appointment. What Dr. Welsh, was your estimation of the director, and why do you think he was shown the door? Well, <clears throat> Claudia, I, I think, like most people, we, we don't really know the whole story here. Um, you know, neither the commissioners nor the former executive director really uh, have spoken much about it. And, you know, there's lots of theories flying around, but um, it, you know, it, it's obvious that the uh, you know, the man was highly regarded and, and had tremendous public support. And, I mean, you heard about 26,000 letters of support and all those right. former coastal commissioners. And and certainly, you know, down in our neck of the woods, um, you know, I know that we all thought he was doing a really good job. But obviously the commission didn't, and, and we don't know exactly what the story is. So, you know, I, I kind of – rumors are flying rampant, but I, I tend not to, to pass those on. I think in time will you know it will come out the commissioners and, and the executive director will speak about what really happened. But at this point, I think the thing is, you know, we we hope that the next executive director was as as good as Dr. Lester. And we have a, an, as the deputy director at um, he's their senior deputy director who's been on the staff already, Jack Ainsworth. And can you tell us anything about him or um, or whom you think is going to be taking his place? Talk to those two points briefly. Um, I don't know who is eventually going to be permanently filling the position, but you know I've, I've met Jack Ainsworth many times, and I, I think he's he's very good. Well, I wanted to give people something to think, consider while we're talking with Dr. Terry Welsh. Here is how the mission statement of the California Coastal Commission begins. Something to keep in mind, and I quote: "The commission is committed 
to protecting and enhancing California's coast and ocean for present and future generations. It does so through careful planning and regulation of environmentally sustainable development, rigorous use of science, strong public participation, education, and effective intergovernmental coordination. So that that's the guiding principle we're talking about here as we talk about the Banning Ranch proposal. Well, I'd like for you, Dr. Welsh, to give us a brief timeline over these last uh, three years of the development's proposal consideration, how the project has transformed as each of the jurisdictions have negotiated with and uh, marked up and down the number of dwelling units, the size of the actual footprint of the developed areas. Yeah, um, well, thanks, Claudia. And just, I think maybe just for your listeners, just briefly, if I can just take just a couple minutes to talk about what Banning Ranch is, first of all, uh, for those who aren't familiar with it. Um, as we always tell everybody, Banning Ranch is the largest parcel of unprotected coastal open space remaining in Orange County, if not all of San Diego, Orange County, and L.A. counties. And what I mean by that is it's not the largest parcel of coastal open space remaining because there are, for example, here in in Orange County, we have Crystal Cove State State Park. We have Bolsa Chica. These are larger parcels of coastal open space, but they are protected already. Most They're publicly owned. They're protected in one way or another. But Banning Ranch is the largest privately owned parcel of coastal open space remaining, whose fate is yet undecided. It's 400 acres, so it's a very large parcel, and it sits right at the mouth of the Santa Ana River, right between Huntington Beach and Newport Beach. And if you've ever driven up and down Coast Highway, right as you cross over the Santa Ana River, if you look inland at that point, you'll see an oil field. Um, You'll see some oil pumps and so forth. That's Banning Ranch. And it's been an oil field since the 1940s, although it is, uh, it's kind of glory days are clearly behind it at this point. It's producing less than 10% of of the oil that it produced during its heydays in the 70s and 80s. Um, And the owners of Banning Ranch, and it's half of the stake is, is ex, it's owned by ExxonMobil and Shell through a wholly owned subsidiary named Era Energy, and then the other half is owned by an outside group of investors from North Carolina. Um, they want to build a very, very large coastal development. It currently has 895 homes, and which is really large. I mean, that's twice as large as Bolsa Chica, yet the parcel is about a quarter of the size of Bolsa Chica. They want, it's going to involve... Uh, grading 2.8 million cubic yards. Um, it's uh, it, so it's a, by any stretch, it's a very, very large project. And Banning Ranch is really because it's one of the last kind of what it called coastal mesas and adjacent wetlands. It has some of this, the last of the coastal habitat left in Orange County. And for example, it's got one of only two remaining coastal vernal pool complexes. It is one of the few areas where burrowing owls spend the winter. Um, the entire site is designated as critical habitat by the federal government for the California gnat catcher. It's also the site of a prehistoric Native American settlement. So it's it's a really, really special place, and we're trying to save it as open space. Um, currently, the owners have a project before the Coastal Commission, and you asked about how it had gone through the various agencies. Originally, the lead agency was the city of Newport Beach, and they approved the project back in 2012. And they really... You know, I hate to use the word rubber stamp, but they pretty much approved the entire project. If anything, they added to the project. They asked the developer to add a, to make this one large road kind of go all the way through the property. And um, about, it was almost three years ago that the developers, after getting approval of the city of Newport Beach, they brought their project to the Coastal Commission. So it's been being processed by the Coastal Commission for the last few years, and it was brought to a hearing in October. And because of so many Coastal Act inconsistencies, the Coastal Commission staff recommended that the commissioners deny the project. But what happened in October was rather than deny the project, the commissioners told the applicant, you know, the developer and the Coastal Commission staff to work out a project, work out a compromise, which could be brought back and approved. So that is currently going on right now. um, And the hearing is expected to be in May, either the 11th, 12th, or 13th. we that, you know, this will become known as, as we approach May, which specific date. And the location is probably going to be Long Beach, but it could be somewhere else in the general area. Um, 
anyway, that's the current situation. And um, I can talk a little bit more about the Coastal Act and the protections it allows. But, Claudia, I, I, let me stop and, and go ahead and ask some questions at this point. Well, you talked about the footprint. At, right. And it's sizable. And when the the footprint goes down, folks, that just it sort of caps off what was underneath. And there there's a great deal underneath, as you were mentioning. The developer on their website, they're offering the Newport Banning Land Trust. What do you think that would contribute to the mix? Are the 284 acres that they target, is this something, uh, is this some sufficient protection? Yeah, it, it's, you know, your listeners should understand that the project, as large as it is, it's not going to involve the entire property. And there will be areas of that property, such as the, the lowland portion of the property and portions of the mesa that will not be developed uh, under any circumstance. Um, and of course, we have no problem at all with this. It's it's more the the footprint of the the project that will be developed that is you know causing us great concern. And it is a very large project, and it tramples on some of the most sensitive habitat and on on the property. And that's kind of where our I guess our issues with the project are. Okay, sensitive habitat. That's a keyword. I just want to let those of you who've joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web on all the the beaches, beachfronts at, at KUCI.org. My guest is Dr. Terry Welsh, president of the Banning Ranch Conservancy and chairperson of the Sierra Club Banning Ranch Park and Preserve Task Force with the impressive day job as pathologist at the Anaheim Regional Medical Center. So as we were preparing, you were talking about the environmentally sensitive habitat areas, areas, which ESHA is its shorthand for that. Uh, It is a wholly different level of scrutiny, a precedent of which was set at the nearby Bolsa Chica uh, development uh, uh, area considered for development in the in the past. Why don't you tell us about what is so important, what's critical in this particular level of scrutiny, and what the commission is giving direction with the staff to pursue? Thank you, Claudia. Yes. Um, so I, your listeners should understand that the Coastal Act is a very strong environmental law. I mean, it, the Coastal Act does many things, and, of course, it ensures that the coast not become the private enclave of the wealthy. It ensures that the public can access the coast all In along various the coast. ways, right. There's visual, physical, there's all kinds of interesting ways that access has been interpreted over not just uh, the the state codified law, but also with a jurisprudence. Right. And, but it also is just as far as an environmental law, it's an extremely strong environmental law. And it's actually a lot stronger than the California Environmental Quality Act, also known as CEQA. And the big difference is if you identify really, really rare wildlife habitat under CEQA, you can mitigate for it. In other words, you can build a project in the rare habitat as long as you restore or create habitat elsewhere on the property, or you can put money into a fund, a a mitigation fund, and that money will be used to buy or preserve habitat somewhere else. But there's ways around the habitat under CEQA. But under the Coastal Act, and this, of course, only applies to property within the coastal zone, uh, the Coastal Act is much stronger. And if there's an area that, that meets the highest wildlife habit criteria, and that's known as Environmentally Sensitive Habitat Area, or ESHA, if there's ESHA on the property, you cannot mitigate for it. You have to build around it. And this was based on a legal precedent that was established uh, with Bolsa Chica. But the issue at Banning Ranch is there's quite a bit of ESHA. And there's, you know, this is the rarest of the rare habitat, kind of the last of the last. And a lot of that ESHA is on the mesa. And that's where the owners want to build their project. So, and, and I can tell you that ESHA really is a very, very high bar. Most habitat will not qualify as ESHA, but there are, you know, rules that, that if it meets a certain criteria, it will be ESHA. And it has to, you know, it, federally listed species, for example, or extremely rare plants or animals. Um, and our experience is, you know, that you can't just take a picture of a rare animal and that will become ESHA. You have to do protocol surveys and it's, it's 
suffice to say, it's a very high bar to establish ESHA, but there is quite a bit of ESHA on the Banyan Ranch Mesa. And in October, and I remember I said that this project was actually brought before the commission in October. Right. Their staff produced an ESHA map, and they kind of documented where the ESHA was on the Banyan Ranch property and, and specifically up on the Mesa. And it left room to build a project, but it was not the project that the developer wanted. They, the staff identified areas where you could build a project, and, you know, using the owner's own densities as could be well over 100 units, which is a large project by any measure on, along the coast. Um, the owners, of course, they want to now build 895 homes on the Mesa. So there's this big gulf between what is allowed by the Coastal Act and what the developers want. And that will play out at, at the May hearing, uh, location to be determined. And um, you know we're all going to be watching it very closely. Well, I just want to mention, when you look at the Coastal Commission website, we know where the June meeting is going to be. That's a very specific address, but it's not specific about the the May meeting. We know it's going to be in March and April, so it's a, I don't know what the, the meaning of that is. But so the ESHA distinction here, the environmentally sensitive habitat area, would you say that is a salient feature that needs addressing in this, and how is the staff did they attend to this as a salient feature and where was the what was the coastal commission's consideration in november of this feature well it is it is the feature with banning ranch i mean it is the habitat value of that property is 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 you know th- that is the big issue which the coastal commission will be deciding in may and yeah it, it's the staff really you know my impression is that they really studied this for a long time a number of site visits. There's a large volume of data on Banning Ranch. It's not just that you know one person went out one day and documented where the gnat catchers nest. They've actually have several years worth of data, so you really get a good idea of where the gnat catchers nest and where they don't nest. We have really good data on where the burrowing owls spend their winter and where they don't spend their winter on Banning Ranch. We have a very good idea of where the vernal pools are and where they aren't. So it's a very formidable body of evidence on what the most sensitive parts of this property are. And under the Coastal Act, you can't just build right up to these sensitive areas. You have to buffer. And that's another issue is yes. you know, the buffers are typically about 100 feet. So uh, if there's an area of gnat catcher nesting, you can't build the home right up next to it. You have to stay away 100 feet. So you can see that after all the ESHA is taken into consideration and mapped out, and then the proper buffers are applied, uh, you know, it it leaves less area than the developer would like to build. But that's, that is good because that's what the Coastal Act says, and the Coastal Act is a good, strong environmental law. It's supported and always has been been supported by the public. And the results of the Coastal Act are, you know, you see them every day. You go drive along the coast. I mean, that's the reason why the California coast doesn't look like the Jersey Shore. Now, forgive me if you're from New Jersey, but that's, you know, or it doesn't look like Miami Beach. And it's because we have the Coastal Act. So um, people need to know the Coastal Act, appreciate the Coastal Act, and see that the Coastal Act is enforced. It's for the benefit of all of us. I, I can't resist mentioning that I, folks can listen to my interview with the late Peter Douglas, the previous California Coastal Commission director who uh, passed away several years ago. But he has always kept his refrain is that the California coast is not saved. It's always being saved. It's a sort of a process to hold that line. So the areas then of concern, it, the, the land trust that the developer is offering, it doesn't go very far then to protect that environmentally sensitive habitat area? I mean, how, how much is it that Venn diagram overlap? Because I know you're saying it, you've mapped it out pretty well. Right. The Newport Banning Land Trust, that's the group that was created by the, the developer. Um, it was created to manage the areas of the property that the developer is not planning on building on. They designated their own area. Right, right. But, you know, it, it, it doesn't, you know... I try to say this, it, you know, this project, it, it assumes that there's going to be a very large project, and yes, there will be areas left over, which will be managed by the Newport Banyan Land Trust. Um, it doesn't 
the, the Newport Banding Land Trust uh, kind of being a creation of the owners doesn't challenge or question uh, the project itself. And whereas, you know, we are heavily questioning and challenging this project because it's simply too big and it, and it has significant impacts, not just to Esha. And I forget, you know, I keep talking about the environment, but there's people also have to remember that there is absolutely documented evidence that this was a prehistoric Native American yes. settlement. And, you know, there's been artifacts and discovered over the years. And picture Banning Ranch. It's right up on a bluff overlooking an estuary on the coast. So it's the perfect place where you can imagine that, that, that people would, would want to be because estuaries are always rich sources of food. And you're up on a high bluff, so you have great visibility. Um, it's, it's the perfect place to, to live. And, and that's what the evidence shows. It's been inhabited for thousands of years. Well, I wanted to bring up to the listeners that what you told me is the coastal commissioners themselves have a different take on this project or the property, the land there, that instead of looking through the Esha lens, they've been shown by the the applicant, the, the developer for the proposed project, the kind of blight around there. So th- that's kind of a problem in characterizing this turf, isn't it? Oh, it is. It is uh I guess one of our biggest hurdles, because the average person, if you went out there and looked at Banning Ranch, what you would see, especially now we're, you know, four and a half years of drought, is it's kind of dry, and there is no doubt you can see the the evidence of the oil field. Now, it's not as active as it once was, but there's still rusty old equipment and rusty old pipes and areas that have been scraped, you know, and, and gravel roads and asphalt roads. So, you, and you don't see the vernal pools because they're dry. And you don't see the, 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 the Native American evidence because it's mostly in the ground. And, you know, it, 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 you don't see the gnat catchers unless you're really looking for them. So the first glance that anybody goes out there and looks at it is that of an oil field. And we, you know, and the developer has made an effort to bring all the commissioners out on the property and show them how, you know, this is an oil field. And certainly by, I think, some of the commissioners' comments in October, that left a very visual impression on the commissioners. Uh, Our argument is, yes, it's an oil field, of course. No one's denying that. But you have to look at the scientific evidence and and the biological surveys to really get an appreciation of of how significant Banning Ranch is. So why does this matter to people who aren't the abutters of this project? And tell us... What's the best pitch they can make based on what this, why this matters to them? What's the best pitch they can make and to whom they should be directing their concerns? Right. Well, if you like open space, which most of us do, and if you value protection of rare habitat, which most of us do, and if you also feel that areas where there's evidence of, of prehistoric Native American settlements should really be respected, which most of us do, then know that the Coastal Act protects all those things. And what the most important thing to do is to voice your support for the Coastal Act and the protections it affords places like Banning Ranch. The Coastal Act will not entirely stop a development at Banning Ranch, and nobody's claiming that it will. In fact, even in October, as I mentioned earlier, the staff said that there could be a project built here, but not just not this large project that the developers are pushing right now. Well, do you think, Dr. Welsh, that the developers put this large number expecting to come down, or uh, you know, sort of in the negotiation dance, or do you think they were they expected to be starting at the top and staying there? Oh, I I think that every developer comes in with a much larger project than they ever hope to get built. And you know that so, that's part of that's the way the game is played. I, right, right. Nothing for nothing unique about uh, the developers of Banning Ranch. I think that's but, just a a standard practice when you know you have a project that will run into biological restraints and, and other types of restraints. As you you know you don't come in with your your bottom line. You no. come in. With, yeah. But but it looks like the city of Newport Beach and the Coastal Commission are poised to stay at at the ceiling that the proposal brings to this negotiation. Well, the city of Newport Beach did not 
you know, the project that went into the city of Newport Beach was pretty much the same one that came out. In fact, as I said, it was even yeah. larger because they had this road, road going all the way through after uh-huh. it went to the city of Newport Beach. We were hoping that the Coastal Commission, and we hope that the Coastal Act is applied, and if so, uh, it, it will have to be a smaller project. But it's important for people to show up at the hearing, to contact the commissioners, and, and get involved in this. Um, we have a website. We have a phone number. Um, we're Please at dannyranchconservancy.org, um, yes. and we've been around for a long time, and we, we are organizing, preparing for this hearing, and we need the public support. What was the number, Dr. Wales? Okay, we have um, 949-478-1757. Yes. All right. And then so that's also, you gave the website, the thebanningranchconservancy.org. The yes. coastal.ca.gov gives you the website for the California Coastal Commission, and it puts the agendas up, which will be in the within three weeks of the May 11 through 13 meeting. You said within two to three weeks, yes. that agenda will be there, and folks can see where it's going to be, what they'll be covering. And I, I guess I, I know you're a pathologist. You're not an attorney. If things go let's say permissively, I could say don't go well, that's my value there. But if it's a a permissive Coastal Commission consideration of this project, maybe you've already had a chance in the the corridors to talk with other people, talk strategies. Is it going to be hard to get standing to challenge the project on behalf of the critters and the the ancient relics underneath the dirt's top there? Well, you know, of course, our hope is that anything that the Coastal Commission approves is consistent with the Coastal Act. You know, if, if it's not, yeah, you know, if you have a project that's flat out inconsistent with the Coastal Act, there's there's always that, you know, legal option. It's obviously a road we don't want to go down, but we're confident that if we get a good turnout and, and really let the commission know where the public lies on this and, and make, most importantly, make the case at the hearing that, you know, that, that the project that the developers are proposing has is, is got numerous inconsistencies with the Coastal Act, you know, I, we, are, we are confident that the commission will, will vote the proper way. And you have them a bit on uh, aware, that, or I won't say quite on the ropes, that the commissioners are very mindful that transparency is a very important principle in play right now, and that I guess that transparency of showing how visible this process is going to be going into the May and going out of the May meeting. And I hope that you'll be able to join us after that May meeting and talk about it, give us an update. So the next meeting, folks, it's going to be, as I said, on the the coastal.ca.gov website. You can see exactly what the address will be. It looks like it's going to be in Long Beach as they sort of put their little flag on that municipality for its meeting place without a specific venue given. So I really thank you, Dr. Terry Walsh, you're uh, giving us this time that's at a premium for you to give us this weigh-in today on the Banning Ranch Development and the California Coastal Commission's mid-May meeting coming. Thanks for doing that with us today. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you for the opportunity to tell people about Banning Ranch. Okay. We'll be right back, folks, after a brief station break to talk with Dr. Mandy Mount. She is our administrator here, director of the UCI Campus Assault Resources and Education Care for short. Be right back. Debussy's La Mer, of course. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Dr. Mandy Mount, Director of UCI Campus Assault Resources and Education. It's CARE for short. Dr. Mandy Mount established the CARE office in 2005. So this is a, it's past the anniversary here. Wonderful. Here she oversees advocacy and holistic healing programs, prevention education programming, engages in research and policy development, serves on the campus resource team for sexual misconduct, conducts, conducts individual and group psychotherapy, and teaches academic courses. I'm still breathless from the last time we laid this out. <laughs> she provides training and consultation for law enforcement, student conduct hearing boards, mental health providers, office on violence against women, women grantees, community organizations, and campus groups. 
Dr. Mount is also, she also directs a Department of Justice office on violence against women, grant to reduce sexual assault, dating and domestic violence, and stalking, and chaired the Victim Resource Directory for use by the University of California system. Dr. Mount chairs the UCI Irvine's Women's Power Empowerment Initiative and has coordinated Girls Conference Orange County since 2012. She's earned her bachelor's degree in psychology from UCLA and her master's and PhD in counseling from the University of Maryland. Dr. Mount returns to the program today after having appeared last year with Teresa Truman. You can check that podcast out on my website, askaleader.com. It was the February 10, 2015 show. So welcome back to the show, Dr. Mandy Mount. Thank you, Claudia. It's great to be back speaking with you again. And I want everybody to know, whenever I ask Dr. Mount if she can be on, if we're getting too close to your spring or your summer break, she always says, wait a minute, let's make sure we're we're holding court together here when we're with students that are uh, in session. So we never, never want to have her on when we don't have the full, uh, uh, you know, the full school attendance here. Well, you ought to take a bow. The New York Times, when they're talking about sort of the national discourse, acknowledge the extent to which college campuses' uh, reforms on sexual assault policies have shaped this uh, this whole discussion. So take a bow. So tell us now about what the university is offering in holistic healing practices that are consistent with our culturally diverse uh, population of suits and how that's evolved and where you want to be in the next several years. Well, thank you for asking about that. I think that that's one of the more exciting areas of growth for the care office at UC Irvine and hopefully for similar offices across the country. We have seen a lot of national attention to the issues of sexual violence and specifically the response to sexual violence from an administrative or a legal perspective in the past couple of years. And while those are very important, we know that sometimes those systems can be very difficult for students to experience. They may be limited in terms of students' ability to access them, and they aren't necessarily designed to support the healing and the resilience of survivors once they've already experienced a traumatic event. And so, I think that while it's critical that we are looking at those systems and we are revising them and we are improving our response from that perspective, I think it is equally important that we are offering services to support the healing and well-being of our students who never deserved to have those experiences in the first place in order to help help them move forward in a successful way and continue to pursue the goals and the dreams that they came to the college environment to pursue. Is there something specific about the culturally diverse population that is being refined? Absolutely. So one of the ways in which I think we can best address the needs of those students is to honor the fact that many of our students do come from diverse backgrounds, culturally, um, ethnically, and so they have different needs. And it's not enough for us to simply offer counseling or simply offer an advocate. For many of our students, those are not accessible sources of support, and our students are not necessarily eager to walk into an administrative office and talk to somebody one-on-one. There may be a lot of cultural barriers that would get in the way of them doing that. So if we're taking our responsibility seriously to provide services that are accessible and can be utilized by our students, we need to recognize the diversity in Um, experiences that might not allow some of our students to access some of those more traditional forms of support provision. So we are developing a set of holistic healing options for our students under the umbrella of RECLAIM. Okay. And And that sounds like a, is that an acronym for something or... Not quite an acronym. Everything's an acronym at UCI. This is one of the things that isn't. Um, But no, it is, however, an umbrella term. And within Reclaim are a series of different programs that also are focused on rewords. So, for example, our trauma-informed yoga 
program, which is now implemented at three of the UC systems, and they are looking to provide funding from the Office of the President to support its implementation at all 10 campuses. We're calling that ReConnect. Or we have a music as healing program, which is entitled Remix. Our art as healing programs are entitled Recreate and so on. We're also looking at all of these are evidence-based or supported modalities of healing. So we're looking at animal-assisted therapies. We're looking at group counseling options. We are also offering things like self-defense. And we're expanding all of those programs in order to provide a wide range of options for our students, no matter what their comfort level is. For us, we find that the most important thing that we can do is to meet people where they are and offer them programs that they believe will facilitate their path to healing. And often through doing that, through providing people with the emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual empowerment, we find that they are more likely to report what's happened to them because they have that strength and they have a support system in place. So we're seeing a lot of our students who might not have otherwise reported, even resulting in increased reporting numbers as a result of offering these programs, which is really exciting. Wow. Not just exciting. It's daunting how you're making good on your holistic sort of depiction here that uh, you're offering this, if I can call it, infrastructure of, of therapy. So it's not, it's not a matter of the, the recourse of pursuing a, a, an assault uh, perpetrator, but, but providing so many different ways to put somebody back together again so that uh, so in, a, on, in the front we're dealing with that the impact of the assault on the individual and sort of mitigating what would be a, a much more complicating, confounding problem were it not addressed with all of these uh, sort of aspects. It's really, really daunting. Well, I thought it was really interesting. In the lovely video that you can see on the website, and we'll put every single website and phone number on the summary, but I, I don't know we're going to have time to bring them all up in the show. But you've mentioned that people can be surprised by their reactions to an assault. Would you elaborate on that, Dr. Mount? Absolutely. So one of the things that I have been sharing a lot more frequently with our students and even with law enforcement or our Title IX investigators in terms of doing their investigations and understanding folks' reactions is that the neurobiology of trauma provides us with an understanding of some of the types of responses that people might not expect. I think that most of us would like to think that when faced with a scary situation like potential sexual assault or even domestic violence, that we would be maybe, um, you know, very effective at resisting that or escaping a situation. We imagine ourselves to respond in a particular way based on what we believe we know about ourselves. But What happens in the body when we are experiencing a traumatic situation is that our body is flooded with hormones, and those hormones have an effect on memory. They have an effect on behavior. And so sometimes as a result of our bodies engaging in certain activities in order to protect ourselves, they actually can even prevent us from doing some of the things that we think we might have done otherwise. And a lot of people don't understand how that works. And so they might get frustrated by the fact that perhaps they froze and they couldn't do anything or say anything in the midst of an assault. Or maybe it's confusing for that person or even others that they were laughing, for example, after an assault has occurred. And that may be very understandable when we when we understand the hormonal impact of trauma and the fact that, for example, opiates are released as one of the four hormones at that moment in time, which are intended to induce good feelings in order to protect us and help us get through those kinds of situations. So that's an example of what I'm talking about. That's amazing. This is why I always 
just crave Dr. Mount's contributions here on there. For those of you who want to know who, what we just heard from whom, my guest is Dr. Mandy Mount, director of the UCI Campus Assault Resources and Education. That's CARE. And she's chair of UCI's Women's Empowerment Initiative here on Ask a Leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and on the web at KUCI.org. Well, with respect to consent, I want to talk about the continuum of sexual harassment to sexual assault. And what is the standard term I hear on your website and elsewhere, it's, it's called unwanted sexual contact. And I'm, I'm going to mention that, say that it comes probably in just a lot of flavors, and it's happening all around the campus. It's not just student on student, but student on with a faculty administrator involved uh, transgressions and it's hard to know how many cases of sexual harassment have taken place but those who have been assaulted in this way are typically very isolated and absolutely have no desire to pursue the host of procedures that are available to them i don't mind giving them a voice as we cover this very private and uh, potentially very painful domain i'd like for you to to talk about how care may be addressing not just student-on-student, but where there's a much more asymmetric sort of power arrangement where sexual harassment takes place. Sure. I'm glad that you bring that up, Claudia. And, you know, I think that no matter whether it's student-on-student or community member on a student or a faculty or a staff member, there's always going to be some kind of imbalance of power. But it certainly can be more isolating in in some unique ways when it includes faculty or staff. And you mentioned that the host of options that are available uh, to students that we think of as typically available may not, in fact, be available, whether that's for very practical reasons. Maybe somebody doesn't fit the set of criteria that are required in order to pursue a particular course of action, or maybe due to personal barriers or even historical barriers, maybe experiences of oppression from the past that lead somebody to be distrustful of the system. Those can all be reasons why people may not either have the option to pursue some of the more traditional remedies uh, or or ways of seeking justice or support, um, or maybe that they are not going to choose to do that. And I think that goes back to why, at the beginning, I was talking about all of these other ways that we have the responsibility. And, and really, it's more than just a responsibility. You know, it's, it's a desire. It's a passion for us here at the UCI Care Office to offer alternative ways of healing and accessing support and information, even if that means that we post everything we can online on the website. So we're not taking away people's options and choices by forcing them to come and speak with somebody, but we're giving it to them wherever they are. And that's really one of the reasons we have that video available online that you mentioned. And that actually is being revised and should be replaced with a new updated video in the next month or two. Well, I I learned a bucket load. I learned about Safe Place that's at the Anaheim Mm -hmm. Regional Medical Center, which, amazingly, my first guest is a pathologist at the Anaheim Regional Medical Center. I didn't know our Venn diagrams are going to overlap that much today's program. But I was taught here there is a forensic nursing team Mm -hmm. that works at the Safe Place. And one interesting myth they debunked for me was that the clothes or showers destroy evidence in an assault. It's a good idea not to not to tamper with things that where evidence can be taken, but the, the very matter of fact nurse stares right in at the screen and says, it's not the last you know draw. There, there are ways that evidence can be maintained. And I thought, we, let's just bring that myth up on the show. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So not everything is lost if people have taken a shower. It's It certainly is not helpful to um, the process of collecting evidence, but, you know, we have seen such great advances in the ability to collect evidence that it used to be that people thought you only had two, maybe three days to collect evidence, but they are doing these exams with folks up to five, even sometimes six days following an assault experience. Wow. And, um, you know, one of the other updates that is not reflected in the current video but will be in the next iteration of the video is that I really want to make sure that people know 
they do not have to file a police report or go through the criminal justice process. They don't have to have decided that in order to get an exam. There is something called a VAWA exam. It can be scheduled between the hours of 9 to 5, and it's an abbreviated exam. It's not quite as intense. It's paid for by California Victim Compensation Money. I'm sorry. So, Dr. Mount, that's VAWA? VAWA, V-A-W-A. Okay. And um, the reason that's really important is because a lot of times when people experience a sexual assault, it's often at the hands of somebody they know, and it brings up a lot of confusing feelings about how somebody wants to move forward. So the good news is that that decision does not have to be made up front. We can still get that evidence collected and give somebody time to think about that so that moment is not lost. Wow. So that's that's going on at at the at the Anaheim Regional Medical Center too. There is a what is called emergency postcoital medication that's available, and that too is more than what we would have thought. That protection for that medication is for up to five days to protect yourself from conception, and then there's preventive medication for STDs also. So you really you're really backing it up there with uh, so much to to sort of um, carry this this assault victim through uh, some kind of resolution and, you know, in various dimensions. That's right. Then, so there's a new update. So that's coming up. Is there kind of a date certain? And you're hoping to see that so people can look at that, know when BAWA is talked about? Uh, The information is on our website in written form. So people can get the information there. Um, It would just need to be coordinated through community service programs, which is our Orange County Rape Crisis Agency. The CARE Office has an advocate that is contracted with CSP, so that can be coordinated through our office or through the community agency. Um, But all that information is available on the website, and the video should be posted section by section over the next two months, period. And the community services programs, the CSP that is there, it's a 24-hour hotline. So I mm-hmm. want to give you a chance to, to talk about where the green dot bystanders making inroads since we last talked. Oh, yes. We have some really exciting updates as far as green dot and where things have gone. We've had two large trainings for students on our campus, which is great. The last one just occurred last weekend. We had about 30 students participate in that Green Dot training to become resident experts and about a similar number a couple months previously. We have been marketing and promoting. There were 24 shuttle ads that were featured on the Anteater Express for the first several months of school. So that was great in terms of establishing that baseline of community responsibility and, and messaging to the students what the bystander model looks like here at UC Irvine. <clears throat> and we are going to be continuing to offer trainings for students who are interested in knowing more and becoming experts on Green Dot and being ambassadors of that message for their peers. So. Students can always contact the care office to find out when those trainings are happening. There's a green dot page on our website. And one of the things I really want to encourage people to do is to go to our website and go to the green dot page and look for the campus map. And if there are moments that people have intervened, people have prevented something awful from happening to another person. We want to hear about that. We want to reward that. We want to celebrate that and give voice to that. And so people can go on there and they can post their experiences of times that they got involved and they did something positive, whether that was contact law enforcement to investigate a situation that was concerning to them or ask a bartender to check on someone or Maybe they took a person to the restroom when they were concerned about their safety or their well-being in the presence of another person. We really, really want to celebrate and hear about that. Well, Dr. Mount, that with your full-on training in psychology, you can probably tell us that a bit about how the Green Dot Bystander Program is a kind of reinforcing, momentum-creating uh, intervention about something that's not right that's going down. Mm-hmm. That's right, and I think that's one of the things that I love most about Green Dot is 
it is reinforcing and it creates a dialogue not just around the negative things that are happening, but it creates that reinforcement for the positive things that are happening, gives people permission and encouragement for getting involved in whatever way is safe and appropriate and comfortable for them. And it acknowledges that barriers do occur for us and that not every option is always available, but that doesn't mean that there isn't always something we can do. And I think that that's a really powerful message for people to hear. There is always something for us to go to. And just if there is a special event coming up since we just missed your second big Green Dot training, anything you want to mention as we're closing the interview, Dr. Mount? Sure, a couple of things that are happening. You mentioned Girls Conference earlier, so we have that coming up this weekend. It's our fourth annual Girls Conference with Girls, Inc., featuring the Kind Campaign, and we're expecting uh, four to 500 participants there, but there is still availability if folks are interested. And they go to? Uh, They would look for Girls Conference Orange County, either on Facebook or Eventbrite. And then also Take Back the Night is coming up quickly, April 20th. If people want to volunteer, now would be the time to reach out to the care office and let us know that you're interested. We'll be hosting volunteer orientations over the next couple of months. And you could just email care at uci.edu and let us know you're interested. Take Back the Night. That's April 20th, folks. Well, Dr. Mandy Mount, it's been such a pleasure again. I learned so much preparing for the interviews with you and having you bring out just how comprehensive care is, intervening, supporting, catching people in this fall, which is a, it's, it's a dreadful fall to be on the receiving end of, a, of harassment or an assault. So I, Dr. Mandy Mount, Director of UCI Campus Assault Resources and Education, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you, Claudia. I'm going to close here with the what we're going to do next week. It's going to be my pleasure to bring Professor Daphne Lay back, and she's going to have student Desiree Nguyen along with a newly founded troupe, Theater Works. They'll be presenting the play Sam I Am over there in the Gillespie uh, Performing Arts Building on March 8th. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Talk to you next week. Oagi aki borai tikoli o elao tikango ao elao kurai no mau enao idai tabe sao i tabe tai nao maori